Welcome to episode 92 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Brittany Lombas. And we are recording in my living room in 7th Ward, New Orleans. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Indeed. I'm going to try not to cough and clear my throat on this episode because I'm feeling a little sick. It's been a rough week of recovery and hot teas and soups and all that in the summer yeah it's kind of weird do people get late summer colds it seems I think like some thing. people do but it's pain the healing process has to be painful because it's so freaking hot outside i'm gonna blame it on spending a weekend with children uh, a couple weeks ago children ruin everything <laughs> they were wonderful um little demons and i had a great time but i also came home sick from it um <laughs> they're full of germs yeah exactly mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, i'm now incubating whatever they had uh spread around <laughs> Well, right about now, we would usually be squeezing in horror movies so we could squeeze out another Halloween episode because we usually like to do as many of those as possible. But we're going to do something a little different this week because a movie that we were very excited about came out in the theaters, Downton Abbey. Yes. Which we've been waiting for all year. Uh, So we're going to sort of hold off the horror stuff for another episode. Which it's kind of weird because like this is such a film that would... I would imagine watching around the holidays. So I was really surprised that they put it out in September instead of like waiting until like November, like late November, early December. So that was interesting. Yeah. Usually Down Abbey does like a Christmas special at the end of every season. And you would know. think it would be a Christmas movie. It's, it's Christmassy. Yeah. Yeah. I know sometimes they like rented out the like actual filming location for like tours and like staying there and stuff. Like, do they do that for Christmas specifically or? Perhaps. But here's the thing about the Highclere Castle. Airbnb (laughs) partnered up with the Downton Abbey movie and basically they are going to rent out a room in the Highclere Castle for one night, but only for two people. It's like whoever books it first. And it's only like 159 bucks. Does that mean that you're staying downstairs in like the uh, servants' quarters? <laughs> no, it's like no, you're staying in one of like the nice rooms, maybe Lady Mary's room. I don't know. Um, and you get the the whole enchilada, you get the whole high crook castle to yourself. And I'm like, oh god, like I wish I lived closer because that sounds cool. But then you have to buy like what a two thousand dollar plane ticket to go to England. But anyways, there goes that dream. <laughs> I'm still imagining traveling there and like end up giving like Thomas's bed where like he took those like weird pills that were supposed to make him straight. Um, I would like a hundred percent rather sleep in Thomas's bed than like one of the nicer ones. <laughs> I'd be like, up. which room was the one Thomas slept in? <laughs> well, um, have you been watching horror movie stuff because Halloween's around the corner or, or are you like kind of pushing that off? Like in general, I'm always like trying to incorporate some horror, some like horrible thriller or something into my life. And yeah, I have. What you've been watching? So this most recent film that I watched, it's more of like, it's like an avant-garde drama and horror. And it was fucking phenomenal. Santa Sangre. I love that movie. It is so good. And I've been wanting to see it. I don't know. Like I have like a, like a little post-it notes all over like my room and notebooks and stuff like movies I want to see. And I was like, what do I want to watch? I'm like, Oh, just grab a fucking post-it note of all the shit you keep building up. And I'm like, okay, let's see. And it was on prime. So, um, I watched it. Absolutely loved it. I don't recall like many films like that, that I've like seen that are at least like take place in Mexico. Like a lot of like the vibes it has was very like Italian and I know that um, yeah, it's co-produced by Argento's brother Claudio, Claudio Argento. Argento and what's his face Holy Mountain uh, guy yes he directed it and you know his son played Phoenix you're gonna have to remind me who that is because it's been a while so Phoenix is the main character okay. of the film where um, he's 
So his son, so there, it starts off with young Phoenix and then the movie picks up and then it's older Phoenix for the rest of the film. And both of them are his sons. Oh, wow. The director's sons. <laughs> oh, that was pretty crazy. Um, so yeah, this movie, it's got that like stupid circus drama trash that I dig so much. And it's kind of, I would say what takes place in like what the forties or fifties, it reminded me of like Carnival, that show. Like yeah. it's got like an old timey traveling circus uh, vibe to it, with like the old like trapeze artistry and yep. the uh, like old fashioned clowning. And it and is so sick and yeah. fun. Well, the gist of the movie is circus family has some drama going on. Father runs a circus, and he also throws knives and hypnotizes people. Mother is a trapeze artist. Son is like a magician kid, and. There's also a tattooed woman who is covered head to toe in like the worst tattoos you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and she is um, part of the knife throwing act. And it's a very sexual act. Like he'll throw knives and like it's like she's about to like, you know, ejaculate or something. So they have there's a, something going on between the tattooed woman and this like circus leader. And the wife catches them in the act and she like pours acid on his dick and she gets super pissed off so he slices her arms off with two ah. knives and her son well, their son obviously is fucked up after this and then the, the film jumps to him being in a insane asylum where he's probably in his early 20s and randomly his mother shows up his armless mother to take him out of the asylum and she does that just to use him to be her new arms. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So they start, like, performing where she, like, sings and has, like, spoken word. And he goes and stands behind her. And his arms are, like, hers. And there's, like, long nails on them, too. And then it becomes very intense where not only is she using him for performance reasons, but she's using his arms to kill for her. And then it just be it, it gets super crazy and yeah. it gets very and i cannot pronounce the damn word Jio? giallo giallo it's a italian for yellow so just imagine it sounding like the word yellow because that's what it is like giallo 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 imagine that you're super pretentious and you're saying the word yellow giallo <laughs> giallo giallo well so the film becomes very giallo and it's very argento kind of in those you know, in the last few scenes with all the murders and all that good stuff. And the mysterious reveals and mysterious reveals all over the damn place. Yeah. It is, it is so good though. It's beautiful. It's like this very, it's very nightmarish, but it's also like a very comforting movie. Like I never felt scared. I just kind yeah. of felt more like intrigued. It's like a gorgeous art object. It's very pretty. Yeah. yeah. But I loved it. I gotta say, I don't like Podorowski. Okay. Usually. I find his movies very pretentious and like gross. And this movie is a little gross, but I feel like that Argento like influence that Jalo like genre like gives his stuff more of like a story structure. Like it's got like a more of a familiar like narrative to it whereas the other stuff is just beautiful images and like mm -hmm. uh no no plot. Which is nice, but after like 30 minutes of shit like that, I'm like I can't. Yeah, I feel you. For yeah. Sure. So, but it was, yeah, it was a great mix of beauty and substance. Yeah. I loved it. So, yeah, I watched that. And I also watched 30 Miles from Nowhere. Never heard of that. It's a horror movie that was actually, I think it was released at some festivals at the end of 2018. And it actually got, like, legit released 
in March of this year. And it's a horror movie and it was funded um, through an Indiegogo campaign or it was attempted to be funded that way. I think they only raised like $7,000 of like a $38,000 goal or something. But yeah, so I went ahead, watched it and it was good. It's like a, a Cabin in the Woods movie and it's centered around a group of college friends, but they're like in their 40s. So it's kind of like they are, they're all coming back together after, you know, being college buddies and going their separate ways. And they come back for a funeral for one of their friends who commits suicide. So his widow is Carrie Preston from True Blood. Okay. And she's kind of off. And they have like a home in the woods, which is 30 miles from nowhere. So they stay in this cabin. And it's funny because like it's a bunch of grown ass people. Like one's a mother you know, one guy's like a psychiatrist and, you know, they're all like adults and they're, they start acting like dumb college kids. And then weird shit starts happening. Like they start to see something in the woods and they don't know what it is, if it's a demon or if it's like a vampire or a person and blood starts like spewing out of the faucet and like weird shit starts <laughs> happening cabin in the woods movies are usually like there's a killer around this is more like a supernatural like haunting kind of well, thing well it's not very made clear until the big reveal uh, okay, okay? okay so it's like at first i'm like oh it's like some weird ghost vampire ghost or something yeah. so you don't really know what it is and that's why i liked that like it didn't really put you in like a direction of like oh we want everyone to think it's like an alien or we want everyone to think it's some psycho person or it's like a vampire like there's no clues for you to like make a dis like to form a theory really. form a theory right so yeah. it's just kind of up in the air you know there's something weird happening and you just don't know what it is and i liked it the only thing i have to say about this movie that i didn't like that much was the end of the movie has this really cool like kill or be killed situation going on and uh -huh. i thought it was really cool and it lasts for fucking 10 minutes so there's all this build-up in the movie that lasts for the majority of the film and then like right at the end is like the nitty-gritty and where stuff starts to get real and it just it didn't last long enough but other than that it was like a pretty legit horror yeah. film i liked it it's not gonna be like one of my most favorite films of this year but yeah. it was good and um a team of like three women actually created this film oh cool so it was, it was created by women produced and written so it's, it's pretty neat and you can kind of get that female perspective um for a lot of the scenes so. i kind of like that over it's halloween cool. to watch like a bunch of like you're watching so much of this stuff not everything's gonna be amazing but there's so much like low budget creative filmmaking out there and right it's cool to like run across stuff. Cool. I've never even heard of that one. It's very good. Yeah. But yeah, so um, yeah, 30 Miles from Nowhere. Sweet. Totally check it out. It's good. Um, what have you been watching, Brandon? Uh, I've been on like a weird kick about like outsider musicians. When Daniel Johnson died a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. I rewatched the documentary about that. And then I'm awaiting a uh, article from you about Nash the Slash right now. Yes. Just like, you know, kind of like niche musicians like that have been kind of focusing on. I saw a couple movies this week that are from this year on that topic. One is called Being Frank, the Chris Seavey story. Is that the big head? Yes. Okay. So in 2014, there was a fictional drama starring Michael Fassbender in a giant paper mache head. Mm -hmm. uh, and it looks like a Flesher cartoon of a human's face. You know, it reminds me of the My Life as a Zucchini Boy a little. Yes. It's right? like a giant like Hey Arnold like football yes. shaped head. 
that was based on a real British musician named Frank Sidebottom. What? And I had no idea. Me neither, really. Well, I mean, I had heard it was based on a true story, but I didn't really know the story behind it, I guess. <gasps> um, so in the movie, uh, Michael Fassbender never takes the paper mache head off. You do like you know it's him acting, but he never takes it off. And he sings these weird, like, Daniel Johnston-type songs about, like, death and depression and things in the movie. I just kind of took it at face value, like, oh, that's what that person did in real life. There's a documentary now about Frank Sidebottom, who's the character's full name, not just Frank. And it tells, like, a more full story about who he was and completely changed my perspective on it. Like, in the Michael Fassbender movie, he's this possessed genius who like lost himself inside this character and couldn't appear to even his friends and family without the head on and stuff. And in real life, that wasn't the case at all. Like this guy was a comedian and also a new wave musician who had like a band that almost made it big called the freshies. And they were actually really fun. Mm. And the movie follows him like having this like sort of normal life and he creates this Frank character and it becomes more popular than his normal stuff. Like, his, like, regular songwriting is overpowered by this, like, novelty act he created. Which oh, is no. the paper mache head. In private, he was still Chris Seavey and still, like, acted like himself. And he had other problems. He was kind of an alcoholic and, like, a workaholic. He worked very hard on his, on his art projects. But he wasn't, like, you know, lost inside the character. He was just okay. a guy who kind of struck a meme by mistake. And, like, this Frank character, like, took off. The paper mache mask, once you see it, is, like, so strong as like iconography and his actual music is just this sarcastic bad covers of pop songs like almost like a weird owl thing where he's like changing the lyrics mm. to like level terrace apart and stuff like that and like making it goofy and about like cheese on toast and like uh later on uh when he gets older is like about how he wants to die because dying will be fun uh <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> so he's like actively antagonizing his audience and like pissing off all these punks at shows by doing this like cutesy like Pee Wee's Playhouse kind of routine in the middle of like these, you know, hardcore punk acts. It should be another punk band on the bill, but instead it's this giant cartoon character in paper shame mask, like singing about football and cheese and, uh, and death. <laughs> so if you just don't know the story behind the guy, it's really interesting because it's completely different than the, the Michael Fassbender movie. If you do know who Frank is, like if you were a British Gen X person who grew up only seeing Frank and being like, who's actually behind the mask? The documentary is cool for just like showing this whole guy's life. And Frank is just one part of it that happened to be the most successful part. Uh, So it's like really informative and the act is just very odd. And I don't know. It's not like a mind blowing documentary, but it's really interesting art wise. He ended up reminding me a lot of Matt Farley for a bunch of different reasons. Like the fact that his novelty stuff was more popular than his like heartfelt songwriting he had all these like intricate hand-drawn zines that he would like work really hard on. You know how like Matt has those basketball games he keeps like stats on. Yes. Frank had this uh, <laughs> soccer team that like he had books and books and books of like stats that like nope he didn't even ever publish them. They were just like his personal journal of oh. that stuff and just things like that. Like it's not a possessed mad genius who lost himself in an act. It's like this guy who works extremely hard on this like very silly thing. And all that hard work paid off. Like, he kind of made a living writing songs, even though it wasn't the songs he wishes he was writing. It was just really interesting as, like, from, like, a DIY artist perspective and all that stuff. That's, like, such, like, the story with so many artists, too, where it's, like, you find what's going to make money 
for you so mm-hmm. you can keep doing like the real shit you want to do too yeah and he yeah. was still recording music in like his bedroom stuff that he like really felt for and it wasn't published because no one really cared <laughs> <laughs> it was just frank that uh that paid his bills <laughs> so that's on amazon prime oh cool and i also saw this movie on amazon prime called gully boy that i've been kind of looking forward to i just haven't carved out the time for it because it's two and a half hours long which uh it's always hard to like click out an evening for that kind of thing mm, yeah uh, the reason it's so long is because it, it's an Indian picture. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I know I've been making y'all watch these, like, Bollywood and Tollywood type things. I mean, things. I do like them. They're yeah, so fucking they're long. They're so long. This one is, like, the Bollywood version of 8 Mile. It's kind of, like, the gimmick of it. What? Uh, it's about this rapper <laughs> from Mumbai who lives in this, like, slum with, like, five of his family members in this, like, cramped little shanty. Do, like, mom's masala instead of mom's <laughs> spaghetti. <laughs> They do make a reference to 8 Mile, just so you mm. know that they're aware that it, that comparison's going to be made. Like, there's a part early in the film where he's flipping through his lyrics journal, and there's, like, a magazine clipping of Eminem in it, where he's, like, writing down his, like, song lyric ideas. It's like, okay, so you know that people are going to make that mental jump. But I like this movie so much more than 8 Mile. It's so really? good. Really? And 8 Mile is a fucking great movie. I don't care about it. Brandon, I- it's so real. I can't look at or listen to Eminem willingly. I fucking hate him. I've hated him for a long time. Okay. And yeah, it just makes me angry looking I just, at him. I like his journey <laughs> because he was a piece of shit and no doubt like he knows he was a piece of shit and And he's still a piece of shit. He comes up <laughs> and down the shit. I don't know. I just like I think it's a nostalgic thing maybe where it's like when I hear like the, you know, clean out my closet song. I just think of like the hot, sticky, syrup smelling bus and me just being like, fuck, this song is my life. Excuse I me. get what you mean, though, about Eminem. Yeah, he's a woman hating piece of shit. I, I really do not like him. Gully Boy, on the other hand, <laughs> you get the same like rise to like rap fame story trajectory that he get with mm-hmm. Eminem in that film. Like he is just this kid who listens to American hip hop on his headphones and like writes all these songs he thinks that one day he'll sell them to a rapper and when he finds other rappers in Mumbai who are like on his same class level they're like no you have to rap your own lyrics no one in rap like does other people's songs it's like about you know being a poet and like speaking right. your truth to the rhyme to the rhythm that's what Eminem does <laughs> yeah <laughs> well and the story the storyline's very similar i just i just don't hate this guy's guts <laughs> so what i want to ask is like are there Bollywood dance scenes and pop mixed with this rap movie? Well, what's cool about it is that the Bollywood aspect where there are these musical breaks, they're just feature length rap music videos. When he uploads a video to YouTube and it gets all these likes and it starts to like raise his profile and uh, open all these opportunities to him, you get to watch the entire video because it's like a Bollywood like dance break. Right. Um, it's not just clips. You get right, the whole, the whole damn thing. song. And the songs are all about class and like how he is stuck in this like servant's class and he has mm. to serve these like richer people and he'll never work his way out of it because the system has him Sounds set Sounds like place. a movie I've seen recently. What was it called? Downton Abbey. Oh, Downton Abbey. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's the same class system. And yeah. and honestly, uh, because of British colonial rule, it's like the exact same oh, class system. Oh, yeah. You're so right about yeah. that. Holy shit. Yeah. The movie's very conscious about privilege. Like, he has this girlfriend who is not allowed to date. Uh, they have to, like, keep it secret because she's of a higher class than him. And Ooh. there's all these musicians who, like, raise his profile and, like, 
get him into like higher profile like positions so that he can become more popular. But they're all privileged brats who like whose parents pay for all their equipment and they're basically treating this like a playground and it's his like his one shot to make something of himself. And because the movie is so long, it has more time to like invest in like all his different relationships and like by the time he actually does become successful, you've been through this like whole emotional journey with him for hours and you're like, it feels more like he's your little rousing. gully boy. Yeah. It's, it's not rushed. <laughs> it's not inauthentic. Like it just feels good. And Ooh. I kind of expected the movie to be like a novelty kind of like, Oh, the Bollywood eight mile. That'll be like an interesting artifact from like a cultural standpoint. It wasn't like that at all. Like I was emotionally invested and the politics about wealth and privilege, like, pissed me off in the right ways and yeah it's just like a really cool good movie uh it's also directed by a woman which i've never seen a bollywood movie oh, wow. a woman before me um, either it was like zoya Akhtar, i think um i'm probably mispronouncing that and apparently all of her movies are on amazon prime too so i, I plan on digging a little further into this but i really liked gully boy it was like one of the most surprising 2019 movies I've seen in a while. Awesome. I'm totally going to check that out because I have like the 30-day prime trial. So I have a couple of days left. Squeeze so. that one in. <laughs> Squeeze in gully boy. Clear out an afternoon because it's long. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said earlier, we are going to be talking about Down Abbey. You just mentioned it again. Right. And Can't stop thinking about it. Right. <laughs> and we're also going to be talking about other TV shows that became movies after the fact. And we're going to have a special guest, uh, never before on the show, Mark Boomer Redman, who writes for our website. For a super long time. For four right? years solid now, yeah. Wow. And he's never been on the show before, so that should be a lot of fun. Yes. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. I don't think there's a day that goes by without someone asking me if there's going to be a film, whether it be an interview or just someone on the street who who says, when when is the movie going to happen? So... Um, I think until we do one, people aren't going to shut up. <laughs> as well. Um, so, so, but it's. Um, it, I mean, the the cast is it's a big ensemble. You know, there are 15 to 18 strong cast members. It is p- difficult to get everyone together at the same time. You know, due to a, the success of the show, everyone's doing other things. Um, but I'm really hopeful that something will happen. And now it's time for our movie of the minute. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. And I made Brittany drag herself Ugh. out to see Downton Abbey on the big screen. I mean, both of us wanted to see this. Yeah, I've been fantasizing about what this movie was going to be like <laughs> since like I got the first like five second teaser trailer earlier this year. So <laughs> uh, it looked like you had a special um, spirit for the occasion that you brought, brought with you. Yes, in 2012, I made my way down to the world's market and bought a bottle of Downton Abbey Bordeaux. And it was like $15, which is very expensive for me when it comes to wine because <laughs> I'm used to like two buck chuck. And I just kind of kept it in my pantry and I'm like, I'm saving this for a special occasion. And I didn't know what that occasion was going to be. And I'm like, this is it. So I pulled that sucker out, uncorked it in Britannia the minute the credits started rolling and I drank that whole thing. And it was amazing. You were cordially invited to go to the Britannia. I was cordially invited. Which is what all the advertising They were said. expecting me. Yes. <laughs> Just very creepy. The advertising, if you didn't know any better, looks like a horror film. Because they're all looking at you. It's like, we've been expecting you. <laughs> and there kind of has been like a horror thriller version of this before. It's called Gosford Park. Yes. And it was written by Julian Fellows with Robert Altman. And... 
Downton Abbey is written by Julian Fellows. This is a movie sequel to a TV show, which is kind of the general topic of today's episode. Right. There were six seasons of this television show. Uh, They concluded in 2016. Each, like, hour-long episodes, too. It's basically a soap opera. Yep. It's set at this point in the 1920s. It's, like, Mm -hmm. pre-World War II, and it's an upstairs-downstairs soap opera. Mm -hmm. So upstairs you have the dying days of the, uh, the royal class running these giant houses that are so big that it takes an entire village to run them properly. And then downstairs you have their uh, direct servants who like, you know, dress them and serve them food and tea every day uh, and, you know, clean the, uh, the, the chimneys and all that. <laughs> and the thing with both like upstairs and downstairs is they have the same amount of drama. Right. Within each section. They're weighted yeah. the same. Like the downstairs servants, personal quarrels and things like that are just as important as, like, yep. the upstairs. And I think a lot of people miss that. I think a lot of people see this show as a wealth porn kind of thing. And it is that a little bit. There's, like, these gorgeous costumes and all this pageantry. Right. Anytime someone even has dinner, there's, Which, like, tuxedos. And... That was a huge highlight of seeing this movie on the big screen. Oh, it was gorgeous. Where, you know, all of the antiques and, like, the costumes and, like, oh, my God, the silver and the crystal. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. Like, I was fanning myself. You know, it was yeah. so beautiful. But there also is, like, class politics and, like, how the downstairs, like, depends on the wealth. And they've been trained their whole lives to do this one thing. And they respect it so much that it's them watching it go down is not like a fuck yeah, fuck the man. It's sort of like, oh, my God, everything I've always wanted to, like, you know, uphold is, like, crumbling. I don't know what to do. But there are the younger people who at this point are starting to like voice almost like Marxist ideas in the kitchen. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of comrade Daisy, who is a kitchen worker. And uh, <laughs> Daisy, basically uh, she's like, why do we care about all this stuff? Like, right. When like Daisy like starts to become woke, it's like, watch out world. Yeah. Like, she's her hair is getting longer and she is in it to win it. And like I said, the show ended in 2016 this is three years later, and it's basically like a two-episode arc of the show. Right. You would not know all of these characters if you had never seen the show before, but they're all pretty broad archetypes. I think you could probably enjoy it if you haven't seen the show. My cousin that came to watch it with me never watched the show before, and he was, like, clapping at the end Great. and crying. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, one episode, if I'm going to break this in half, is about the fact that the king is coming to eat dinner at Downton. Yes, the royals. And there's a bunch of pageantry and like logistics of like setting up this parade and making sure they have a place to stay and all this. Mm-hmm. The second arc is after the royals have arrived, uh, the downstairs has been disenfranchised by the king's staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the king has his own chef and his own royal dresser who will dress him and um his own like butler who like runs the entire house but he's not a butler he's like the king's page of the backstairs page of the backstairs (laughs) they're basically like (laughs) it's like almost like a wealth class difference within the servants downstairs like the king's people see themselves as so much better than down abbey staff and thinks they aren't like worthy of even pitching in right Uh, so then there's a coup and the servants fight for the right to serve uh, the king on his visit. Almost like it's like patriotic, like I got to serve the royalty, uh, his royal majesty. And yeah, that's the second half is like those two factions warring downstairs. To me, I, I'm going to throw this to you because I think you're going to have a different take on it. The drama of this didn't really hit me in any way. 
Um, there's like these like flashes of like dramatic conflict and like political intrigue. Like there's an assassination attempt or like uh, the logistics of like locking and poisoning the uh, the king's servants so they can't you know meddle in Downton like having its day. Those are all very quick conflicts. This mostly played as like a comedy for me. Violet Grantham, who is played by uh, Maggie Smith, Maggie Smith, the Dowager Countess. She is just on her top, like bitchy drag queen mode here, and just throwing out quips like crazy, and they're all so funny. The Queen of Quips, for yes. sure. Yeah. And then uh, Mosley, who is like the downstairs He's clown, such a doofus, fucks everything up. Uh, <laughs> is at his Mosleyest in this movie, and just like completely <laughs> shows his ass in a very big like public display in front of the royalty at like the worst time Uh, and it's so funny (laughs) and that was like the biggest joy to me was like i know this show is funny because watching it on my couch i'm always laughing but there's something really satisfying about seeing it with a theater full of people who are like also laughing on the same page as you yes like light chuckles at all the funny stuff that you think's funny and like claps at parts that you're like getting really amped about and you know people were crying when I was crying for the more sadder portion it was just so it was like this huge like group effort (laughs) can you get into what made you cry before we talk about um without without spoiling too much I mean so one of the elderly members of the family is okay yeah yeah yeah. okay yeah, there's like an end of an I kinda, era. I don't know. I just got sad for that because like they, she has such a connection with this other person and they always did throughout the series and it was a little different between the two of them. It's like a passing of the torch. Yes. It's passing of the torch, which skips the whole fucking generation. Yep. <laughs> which I loved. So yeah, I thought that was, spe- I, I always liked their bond, these two. So I thought that was like really sweet and special. But besides that like final passing of the torch. Right. And that, like, you know, sad come down, which I feel like was just opening it up for, like, a sequel. Like, in case someone dies before the next one's made, they, they, like, left it open. It ended, too, in a way where it was, like, I'm okay if they don't make another one, but then they could also make another one at the same time. Like, right. it wasn't open-ended, and it wasn't, like, boom, this is the end. I didn't think anybody knew how successful it would be, and it ended up being the number one movie in the country last weekend, which was good. Mm-hmm. But okay, besides all that, it's basically just like fan service, like crazy. Like, none of the characters you don't care about show up at all. Like, Mary's husband shows up in the last five minutes. Like, He's who lame. gives a shit about yeah. that guy? So lame. The parents who haven't had anything to do in a while are sidelined the whole time. It's mostly just, you know, Maggie Smith throwing like sassy quips about uh, Machiavelli and uh, Caligula uh, at one point. <laughs> and then all the characters you love to see, like, Shining brightly. Nothing that bad you happens to anybody. You get to see um, Anna and Bates' child, who is now, like, grown. I thought that was kind of cool. But even they, like, even Bates has become boring. Like, after he went to prison for a couple seasons, they haven't known what to do with I him. I loved Bates in prison. Like, I didn't like him in prison, but I thought, like, prison Bates. Uh, I was just I was so... Into him. I was so over going to prison over and over again after two seasons of that. <laughs> but, okay... He doesn't do anything. Like, Anna yeah. is active in staging that, like, kitchen coup towards the end. And she finds a thief. Right. <laughs> yes. There's always a thief at downtown. She's sleuthing. <laughs> so they give her a lot to do because she's a more interesting character. But I did like how, like, you were saying, like, there's, like, little spats of drama, but it's not, like, any super intense moments. But I like how there's such a huge cast for Downton, and everyone got their time. Right. Like, there wasn't anyone story overshadowing another like it was really 
proportioned very well. Which is crazy for a soap opera. Yeah. Because it's so many characters. Usually, like... So good. On a soap, you'll see maybe, like, three minutes of a character per episode, and, like, they'll move the story forward an inch. And, like, over a season, you'll see a, a story mm-hmm. play out. Like, uh, when Edith had that um, that uh, soldier who was uh, maimed and was, like, pretending to be, like, the oh. heir of the, the family. Like, that took episodes and episodes. If it was this movie, it would have, like, been over and done with in ten minutes. Right. They, they rush everything through, uh, which is totally fine with me because I just I wanted it. to see all the stuff big and loud. And I wanted to I, laugh. Yeah. There's a lot of good jokes. And, like, there were some very interesting, like, camera shots where they were fluffing, like, the... Um, blankets and you can see the dust particles in the air and you can see the pollen outside it was really neat there was like slow motion shots like almost like in an action movie where they like slow down the explosion so you could like soak it in but mm-hmm. it was like silverware being put out on the table and I stuff. know it's like you love this shit eat it up it was great <laughs> <laughs> i just had a lot of fun i wasn't bored with anyone like i feel like there are storylines on the show where you're like I do not care what Branson is up to because they usually can't find anything for him to do that's useful. Uh, Oh, and Thomas gets his kind of time to shine too where he gets like a legit romance. Okay. Which I like too. There is some gay stuff in the movie, but it's always the same story with him where like Thomas is surprised that other gay people exist. Like that's the story over and over again with him. Right. But I do like how he gets like someone that he connects with yeah. on a different level than he did with anyone else. And I thought that was really sweet. And there's that like gay speakeasy sequence, which is really fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was awesome. There's a lot of fun stuff. It'll make you laugh. If you already like the show, do you think people would like it if they'd never seen it before? I guess I, I think so. It's the thing. What Downton is, you can describe it to people and they're like, why the fuck do you watch this? It sounds so boring. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, if you sit your ass down and you watch one fucking episode, you're going to be like, how did I find all that to like blow my mind? It's like an experience. <laughs> I think blow my mind's like a very big, well, uh, I just promise. remember like, you know, like small things where, uh, you know, when I first started getting into it, I was like, my God, Lord Grantham kissed the maid on the cheek. And that was like the highlight of like right. my summer. <laughs> you know, and it's something so like, what? who gives a shit? But that's how like Downton does. Like it takes all these like tiny little things and just makes them into like these, I don't know. But the real hook is the humor. Yeah. If you showed someone a three minute clip of just Maggie Smith making jokes. And Mosley being Mosley. And Mosley being an absolute fucking clown. Mm-hmm. Like that will hook you in a lot quicker than the drama, which is a lot harder to True. sell. Yes. It is a lighthearted, classy comedy. I felt so like, I don't know. I just, I felt fancy watching it. And like <laughs> when I was laughing, it wasn't like a gross laugh like I normally have. Like I was like, <laughs> oh, I was And I cackling. don't laugh like that. And I'm like, who am I? <laughs> I was cackling like it was like a gross out comedy. Uh, it just like it, it made a classy woman out of me, <laughs> Downton, Abby the movie. There's always a joker in the pack. There's always a lonely clown. And there is a jester, just a fool, as foolish as he can be. There's always a joker, that's the move. So we're going to talk about more movie sequels to TV shows that we like. 
Um, and joining us for this part of the conversation is Mark Boomer Redman. Hello, everyone. Mark has been writing with us for four years solid now. Yes, and indeed. We have not been in the same room together before right now. We met. You right. and I met. Oh, but, but since I started working there, We're, no. And you and me and Brittany have never been in the no, same room. No, I have never met Brittany before we just met, like, tonight. Yeah. An hour ago. Yeah. And you and I only met once before we watched a Nick Cage movie. Like We watched Vampire, Kiss of the Vampire or whatever Vampire's it's called. Vampire's Kiss. Vampire's Kiss and... The Howling 2, My Stepsister is a Werewolf. What a great double feature. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's kind of overload. Well, it's been a long time. It has been a long time. I was a different man then. I think every cell was different. <laughs> oh, that's true. Because your body's a river and the cells just go through it. Yeah, Whoa. yeah, you know. <laughs> that's so deep. Just around the river bend, the water is the metaphor. Here we are. That's very deep for the movie we're about to talk about, too. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brittany picked a movie from 2005 that's a sequel to a TV show she likes. Mm-hmm. What is that movie and that show called? So the movie is Da Kath and Kim Code, which is a play on the Da Vinci Code. Uh, did not expect that when I started watching. <laughs> oh, you didn't? You just thought they were saying duh instead of the? I had no well, idea what the show was about. Okay. So, yeah. To be fair, it took me a while, even after they established that they had gone on the Da Vinci tour, because Kim's husband works at Computer City. So... <laughs> I was like, yeah, sure. This is just a, this is just they're they're making fun of their own accents. It's like a universe with no hard R's. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they don't put R's on anything. E. So it is a well started out as a made for TV movie that eventually got distributed, and it is sort of a follow up to the Australian comedy series Kath and Kim. It's like halfway into the show, right? There's like six seasons of the show. Three seasons. Oh, that's it. Okay, mm-hmm. never mind. So this There's, is after the show. Yeah, three seasons. And actually, the third season ended in 2005, and the film came shortly after. So, yeah, there's only th- only three seasons of this wonderful show. And British and, like, Australian shows are so frustrating that way. Like, there's they so little end. of it. Yeah. So, essentially, this film stars two stupid, funny women, and they're both, in real life, the same age. And they play a mother and daughter duo where Kim is the daughter and she's like this bitchy brat, like bully. And Kath is her mother who is like stuck in like 1980. But is super fashionable for that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> have you have you seen the show before, Brandon? No. Uh, the movie was my first introduction. Um, since then, I've watched about one season because uh, okay. I didn't get hooked onto it. Yeah, I had seen probably like five or six episodes before Ooh, like oh, at a okay. friend's house. So I was familiar with Kath and Kim. Good. But I was not prepared for them <laughs> to go where they went. Yeah, this feels like, it reminded me of like how Trailer Park Boys <laughs> kind of starts as this like sort of low-key documentary about these like eccentric characters mockumentary <laughs> they're not real people um, <laughs> but like by later seasons it's just like full-on Looney Tunes uh, and like the characters are like so outsized and the like eccentricities have gotten so big and this like watching this it feels like I had missed the lead up and like just jumped into the deep end of like them already being really over the top you know cartoon sized versions of themselves like the one of the first introductions to the husband character Kel, Kel. is him speed walking <laughs> down the street and he has the most ridiculous <laughs> body contortions that are like Iggy Popish and like they're like inhuman he's, angles. He looks he's, like he's working out his spine. Right, right, right. <laughs> yes, like he's at the chiropractor. 
Yeah, he's also a purveyor of fine meats. And in the series, like, there's, like, a whole season where he's trying to perfect the perfect sausage recipe. Yeah, he's a little tape recorder where he has, like, sausage ideas that he, like, records to himself. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, Kath and Kim, mother-daughter, live together. And Kath is married to Kel. Kim is married to Britt. (laughs) And her best friend, which is one of my favorite characters, is Sharon, who's play. I can't ever pronounce her name, but she is from Babe. And what's funny is I knew her from Farscape. Which is, of course, the weirdest possible thing that you could know her from. Is she on, like, a lot of episodes of that show? No, she's on two. That makes sense. Uh, I like to watch both. I did did watch it obsessively as a child. She's she's early in the first season. I don't need to give a Farscape plot description, (laughs) although I I full-on could and I'm prepared to at any time. But then later in the show, once John Crichton has been split into two John Crichtons, because that's what happens... Uh, one of them dies due to her being um, uh, a backstabber and wanting the wormhole technology. So, uh, sorry, spoilers for uh, a 1999 television program that was one American astronaut's descent. Yeah, she's in it for herself. You know, she's she's complex. I want to see her being... Well, I mean, she was a bad guy in the Crocodile Hunter movie. Yes, we did just watch her in another TV (laughs) uh, movie sequel. Um, The Crocodile Hunter... I can't remember the full title of that film. The Crocodile Hunter Collision Course. And she's Rosie, and she's this woman who has a ranch with like 80 dogs, and she shoots at gators. Or crocs. Oh. (laughs) Sounds like she's she's a friend, but to not all living things. (laughs) No, she's not. (laughs) So, but she like is very like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed 24-7 like Kim just shits on her the whole time <laughs> but it's one of those things where you like, you think you would hate it but it's so funny the way she does it and like she just has this like bowl haircut and like bops her little head around and like drives around this like little blue car and like shoves french fries down her mouth she's always injured yeah. or looking for love yeah and covered in like aren't welts and <laughs> neck braces aren't we all aren't we all all three of those things yeah exactly <laughs> so that's essentially the whole series of Kath and Kim is just like a bunch of weird stupid funny stuff occurring like there's no like main plot line that goes through everything it's like this insular world where there's only these five people yeah like it's kind of like the office in a way where like i feel like you can jump into like a kath and kim episode and it's just funny and that's how the movie felt like i i didn't need Mm -hmm. to know their story because it doesn't feel like story really matters it's basically just how over the top these characters are and you kind of instantly walk onto it. I was sold on it initially and convinced to watch it by a friend who was like, Oh, it's just Australian. Absolutely fabulous. Which I guess mm-hmm. is, is the most easy comparison because of yeah. like the, yeah. the relationship between the two. Their taste is much more working class. There's uh, not yeah. a lot of La Croix. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. Like their favorite snack is Dippity Bix, which is the, these like <laughs> shortbread, like uh, chocolate dunkers. And they go to the $2 shop. Yeah. And I did <laughs> love the two women working at the store. Purred and jerk. Purred and jerk. Yeah. They were delightful. I think they were my favorite part. I would watch a <laughs> yeah. whole a whole show of just them. So they're them. played by the same actors, right? Uh-huh. And that's very like Tracy Ullman to like just switch your wig and like all of a sudden you're a different character in the same universe. Yeah, it's like the um, it's the it's like the sketch from that Mitchell and Webb look where the two famous actors are going to play Holmes and Watson, but they don't decide before they bring them on set. So every time <laughs> there's like an angle change, they've swapped. Oh no, <laughs> it's delightful. Okay. <laughs> 
Prudent Judah like so good and I was so pumped like when I saw this movie for the first time to see that they played a role in it because they are recurring character Mm -hmm. duo throughout the series and they're so funny they're just like two snobby like Australian women and they always tend to like end their sentence with something that ends in like a er (laughs) so like it all like everything they say rhymes yeah (laughs) it's so funny but the Kath and Kim code randomly has like some Da Vinci code in it right Kath and Gail come back from Italy mm-hmm. after going on a Da Vinci Code tour, including like souvenir t-shirts for their grandchild, Epony Rye. And there's an albino that is like kind of stalking them and leaving clues. And this is like throughout the whole movie. And I kind of like forget that that's a thing. Yeah, I mean, ostensibly, that's kind of the plot. makes it funnier whenever, like, the Last Supper photo ends up. I'm like, why is he getting that? I'm like, oh, I forgot about this. Like, Da Vinci Code (laughs) albino stalking him. And it made me laugh even harder. And it's around Christmas time, which in Australia is, like, summer, right? Right. I gotta say, discussing a Christmas movie before Halloween feels very blasphemous to me. It's so weird. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad you're uncomfortable, Brandon. (laughs) So, Kath and Kel are working on becoming backup dancers for a Christmas spectacular with Michael Bublé. And the Wiggles? (laughs) And the Wiggles, where Kel eats their sandwiches. (laughs) That's a very big, like, TV movie stunt, right? To have, like, uh, special guest characters. Like how we pulled Boomer in for um, a special guest appearance <laughs> You're on You're the Michael Bublé. Yeah. Oh, my God, I am. <laughs> uh, Isn't he a I'll, spunk? I'll Michael Bublé? <laughs> a lot of this show, a lot of this movie feels like it could just be a long episode of the show, but, like, bringing in stars makes it feel like a special occasion. It's, yeah. It's funny. Yeah. I also wanted to note that, along with the Da Vinci Code stuff, that Da Vinci Code video game that he's playing is one of the most astonishingly rendered fake video games I've ever seen in anything. I was like, it looked so good. I was surprised. It's it was like a like, Grand Theft Auto riff. Yeah, but it looked like they built it on the actual Grand Theft Auto engine. You know, like normally you watch like even something like like Raw whenever they're like playing the video games and it's clear that they're not even now. It's like we know what that looks like. Right. But this looked like a video game that you could actually play <laughs> and it wasn't just blocks or a pac-man ripoff i was i was astonished and they plugged uh kath and kel into the game too right yeah. like little pixelated versions of them <laughs> which was beautiful that got a big laugh on me and the uh da bath book which was a uh <laughs> a bath book version yes. of the da vinci code for babies yeah. that made me laugh very hard <laughs> Well, all along while this like Da Vinci Code, Michael Blueblade crap is happening, Kim, her husband, Cal, cheats on her, but like kind of gets like her, like his coworker or his boss gets a little drunk at a party and like she can't go to and she got spray tanned for the occasion, might I mention. And he like makes out with her and Sharon's like eating a kid's meal in her car and sees them like kissing and then tells him and then like their marriage is kind of like going through a rocky time all while this is happening and their marriage is going through a rocky time in every single episode every of the show. episode yeah i love how like the spot is um the buckingham motel <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a shitty best western they have great sourdough toasts um, apparently <laughs> yes so yeah this movie's kind of like all over the place but it's super funny Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's absurd. Like I, I, and like I was saying earlier, I just like how this universe is so small. Like, 
when Kath and Kel have their falling out too, Kel also goes to the Buckingham Motel. <laughs> and like, it's seemingly Brett is his only other friend. And the albino is staying there too. On that right, right, And they right. talk about it like, oh, the Buckingham? Yeah. <laughs> like, is this great place everyone knows about? Uh, what did you think of the movie? It had been so long since I had watched any part of the show. I was like, am I even going to follow this? So I read the Wikipedia <laughs> article about the show first. And I was like, right, right. Now I remember all these characters. Yeah, Kath, Kim, Cal, got it. I really enjoyed it. I always do. I enjoy everything, though. Almost everything. There have been things I didn't enjoy. We've, we've just discussed textually right but uh yeah i i wish that i had watched it with someone else so because i I find that i tend to like actually like guffaw more as a as a social thing but instead i just had like a big shit-eating grin the whole time (laughs) it's like yeah this is this is the good shit i laughed out loud by myself like a maniac a couple times Uh, there's a shot where like Kath is holding a Christmas tree and wearing a fur coat. Oh my god! And Kim is like, "You look like a, a monkey, monkey right now." Yeah. And then she starts picking stuff out of her own hair. She's like, "No, I don't." Uh, like that made me laugh out loud. And I'm like, "There's no one else here." Uh, so I guess this is working. Yeah, I got distracted in that scene because they were in the food court, and the last time I saw a food court in a movie was in Hustlers, <laughs> and it was such a ridiculous scene that for a moment I was taken it out, taken out because I was like, "Oh right, J Lo's recruiting." I was like, "Oh wait, no, this is Kath and Kim." I still haven't seen that yet. I'm very excited. Oh my god, it's. There's a there's a part in the movie. So, first of all, after J Lo does her introductory dance to my preferred sultry song, which I've done at karaoke probably thirty times, which is Fiona Apple's "Criminal," because oh, you can get real sultry with it. She comes off stage just covered in money, yeah, you know, just carrying it, and she goes up to Constant Constant Wu, and she's like, "Doesn't money make you horny?" And it's Ugh. like, "Yes, girl, it does." <laughs> wow. So see it, see it when you can done um i will totally mention that i loved sharon as boy george for her 80s themed party oh so good (laughs) she's so funny and then um that moment where cam well speaking of strippers cam gets on a table because she's trying to find someone to come to the christmas like dinner with her and they're playing that song like touch me i want to feel your body (laughs) and she like is like, there's just two guys who are staring at her, like, what the fuck's happening? Yeah. And she's like, do you like shrimps? And just, like, <laughs> I mean, like, the menu that they're going to have. And then she, like, falls on the floor. Like, <laughs> that is so funny. That That is so the funny. one through line I think works really well, is that this is sort of like a matchmaking movie for all three of the women. Like, Sharon is online dating, sort of. <laughs> Poor Sharon. <laughs> it turns out that she's been dating a blog um, the whole time. <laughs> Uh, and Kath is trying to like lure in a date and then Kim's having her own problems with Kel the whole time and the success rate for the other two women is way higher than like the most I guess conventionally attractive person on the show like Kim thinks that she is the hottest one of the crew and yet no one is interested in her everyone wants her mom and it's so funny every time how much even Santa Claus yeah (laughs) it's like that joke is always funny yeah (laughs) <laughs> I will say, after watching the movie and then going back, I lost a little bit of what I liked about the movie, which is that everyone's really nice and chipper. There's a lot of like passive-aggressive stuff like under the surface, mm-hmm. yeah. but the show, they're like actively mean. Like... Kath like always digs at her daughter's weight, like every oh, yeah. other line, yeah. and like that doesn't really 
it, it happens a couple times in the movie, but it's not like hammered the home the way it is on the show. So I kind of missed that going back. Like the, the movie is very sweet and silly. Yeah, it got a little light, and probably with time too. Yeah, you were talking about the through line and the the shrimp of the prawns. As a subplot, I loved the discussion of like, oh, you know, you can just bring soda and you can just bring ice, but also you need to bring prawns because <laughs> I don't. I mean, even in Louisiana, we don't eat shrimp at Christmas. I mean, sometimes. Sometimes. New Year's. But, I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. But isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's it's your family. Niche, yeah. It's like a shrimp. Uh, yeah. Study we're shrimp, shrimp people. Yeah. It's, it's not something I would think of as a traditional Christmas like a food. Christmas dish. And the fact that it becomes such a, a burden for Kim because she has to, she, she either has to spend a ton of money on already peeled and deveined prawns or buy the prawns and have, spend Christmas <laughs> with prawn shit in under her nails. Yeah. As she says, that I thought was a wonderful, like passive aggressive moment where they were being chipper and kind to each other, like you were saying. But like, Kath was giving her the shittiest job. Oh yeah, oh, for yeah. totally, literally. <laughs> and then isn't Sharon's bringing the icebergs? Yeah. <laughs> There's like a weird fixation on food in general. Like, isn't there a running gag in the movie where there's just like rotting meat on plates, like kind of hanging out <laughs> around the house? Yeah. Like people just sort of abandon these like microwave sausages around the kitchen. What's so funny, all the food too is so like 80s food, like mm-hmm. 80s dishes that they serve. Like it's not, I don't know. I just, every time they're talking about what they're going to make, I just picture one of those like nasty gelatin vintage cookbooks oh, being yeah, opened up. Great. And I'm like, that's the spread. Right. Yeah. <laughs> The Asabuco is left out for who knows how long before <laughs> Kel gets home from his Da Vinci. Their incomplete Da Vinci tour. <laughs> Where they're offered a franchise eventually. Uh, yeah. Because they're, they're some of the best Da Vinci code you spoiled tour takers. the ending, Brandon. Oh, I'm sorry. It's so Does that matter? No, it doesn't matter at all. <laughs> I didn't mean to ruin this movie. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of the point. Like, this is not something that matters story wise. It's all about these like character eccentrics and right, absolutely, yeah. And they're yeah. genuinely funny. Like, mm-hmm. you don't really need to know that much going in. Also, CC recognized this um, when I was watching it as a NBC sitcom in America that was yes. rebooted with Molly Shannon and, and Selma, Selma Blair. Blair. Yeah, Whoa. Uh, it did not last long, thankfully. <laughs> It was, you know, it was, it was definitely like a, like a, to... like a transporter accident, like a father I should not be <laughs> right, right. kind of like sitcom that was dead on arrival, which with those two, it should have been great. But some of Blair's perfect casting not. for that. Yeah. I can see how like some of the joke is like you were saying, Brittany, like it is very like early nineties, late eighties aesthetic mm-hmm. and kind of the joke is they're in this like sort of isolated Australian community like suburb. and they barely have an internet connection. Like they feel like cut off from like the modern yeah. world, except for the uh, magazines they're always flipping through. Like they're really on top of gossip. Uh, yeah. But otherwise like that might not translate to like an American suburb where it's like, why don't they know these things and why aren't they up to date on this? Yeah. In particular, the, the subplot with Brit and his like flip phone, flip phone and his, <laughs> Texting the wrong person over over and over again. It definitely was something that was very of its time. Not that we don't have texting mishaps today, but (laughs) his particular ineptness at it that was so ongoing and continuous definitely was uh, of its time. Right. Yeah. And he's very show-offy with like how he flips the phone shut (laughs) to like brag about the fact that he has one. Yeah. Well, that's what happens when you become part of middle management. Right, right. <laughs> of Computer City. <laughs> okay. 
I think we can move on to a movie with a much more complicated plot uh, that Boomer brought to the table. <laughs> yes. All right. So, you know, you, you gave me the prompt of films that were sequels to uh, TV shows. And of course, anyone who's ever read anything that I've written on the site knows that I am the worst and all I care about is Star Trek. It's like I have a, <laughs> I have a, a self-awarded doctorate degree in Star Trek cosmology because <laughs> I don't recognize any other powers or institutions ability to grant that to me other than myself. So, of course, we're going with Wrath of Khan, which is a sequel in general to the Star Trek original series and a sequel in particular to the second, no, first season episode Space Seed starring... Ricardo Montalban, the mm-hmm. finest Mexican actor of the day. The sexiest as, man in the galaxy. <laughs> as as the... Chiseled chest. Chiseled chested. Yes. <laughs> perfect genetically engineered eugenic Sikh Superman, <laughs> Khan Noonien Singh. Within the show, which was made in the 60s, of course, the 90s were when we had the eugenics wars. And of course... I don't know how active the comment board's on here, but if it's anything like YouTube, I'm going to go ahead and say we all know about the two-part Eugenics Wars novel written by Greg Cox that tied into all of the other Star Trek mythology. We don't... I know about it anyway. You don't have to get on to me about this. But uh, the Eugenics Wars in the 90s, you know, Khan and his people were exiled after, you know, they were stronger than most men and smarter than most men, strength of 10 men, what have you. And... Kirk and company find the Botany Bay cryogenic ship floating out in space and Khan tries to take over the Enterprise and Kirk is like, look, I don't really think that prison is the place for you. Once they defeated him with their better morals and, you know, a couple of fisticuffs and and, and a couple of like stuntmen that don't look like either Shatner or Montalban. <laughs> and he exiles him and his people, including like a woman on the ship who has fallen in love with Khan because Star Trek was very progressive for his day, but it was still the 60s. Uh, And he's like, you're going to live down here on this planet. You know, the show was canceled, and then there was going to be a sequel show in the 70s, which was ultimately scrapped after Star Wars came out and demonstrated that there was a market for a big-budget, like, science fiction film. Bob Wise, who directed The Day the Earth Stood Still, then directed the motion picture, which... Which people hated, right? I'm not a fan. Right. Even it's, uh, they call it Star Trek, the slow motion picture or Star (laughs) Trek, the motionless picture. Paramount was like, Bob Weiss, make us a star war. And he was like, how about if I make you a 2001? And it is what it is. The guys on red letter media, especially Mike talk a lot about how you'll never see a big budget, cerebral, needlessly cerebral sci-fi film like that again which is probably true, but I'm not a fan, but it did make enough money to warrant one sequel. And they were going to then just cut the franchise off and be done with it. They brought in Nicholas Meyer, who was a British author who wrote a couple of Sherlock Holmes novels. Um, the 7% solution most famously, which has a a big twist that I won't get into, (laughs) but you can either read it or read the Wikipedia page, but it's, it's fascinating in that one it's Holmes goes to Sigmund Freud for treatment for his addiction in the 7% solution. Nicholas Meyer, he uh, had never directed a film before, I believe. They sat him down. They gave him a bunch of reel-to-reel tapes of the old show. He watched the whole thing through. That's he so latched weird. on to oh Space God. Seed 
as an episode that he wanted to do a sequel to. And it takes the plot of Space Seed, which is Kirk exiling the Superman Khan to this planet, and basically makes Wrath of Khan Paradise Lost writ large across like the Star Trek franchise, with Kirk as the god who literally cast Khan down from the heavens. So that's all the backstory, but the plot is that uh, former Enterprise crewman Pavel Chekhov is now first officer on the USS Reliant. They're scouting for a dead planet or planetoid on which to test a device that is basically instant terraformation of a planet. Discover that due to some sort of cosmic event, um, the planet that they thought was one, like SETI Alpha 4, is actually SETI Alpha 5, and Khan is down there. (laughs) And so they get kidnapped. Khan uses these brain eels to try and pull his revenge on Kirk and company. They're like mind control brain eels. Yeah, they're yeah. mind control brain eels. <laughs> you course. have um, Captain Terrell played by um, classic actor. His name is not coming to me. but I just saw him as like a that guy. Like I've seen him in other things. Yeah, yeah. he 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 I can't re- he was in one of the more famous MLK films as MLK. I think is what he's most famous for. There's a close up shot on Khan's shelf when they first discover like the remains of the ship that they have landed with and the three things on the shelf are king lear moby dick and paradise lost Mm -hmm. and it really sets like i think it's one of the more literary science fiction films ever made of course it came out in 82 which is like a huge sci-fi year you've got blade runner that year you've got tron secret of nim the last unicorn various others Uh, 1982 was a really big sci-fi year so it came out in a in a pretty packed year, still pretty memorable. The fan base is divided into whether or not four, the Voyage Home is the best one, or Wrath of Khan. Four is the one that I grew up with when I was a kid. You know, we had that on VHS. When I was sick, I would ask my mom to let us watch the whale movie. Before that I one, could I even think conceive. I saw in the theater in '86. Maybe not. I thought that was more like like '89, '90. Maybe, uh, maybe it could have been a re-release or it could have yeah i mean it was the 80s things could run forever people didn't pay attention my stepdad was a huge trekkie yeah and we never really had a lot of money to go to the movies when right. i was a kid but anytime a star trek or a star Wars movie came out we were at the theater that was like exciting to me even though i never really fully understood <laughs> what i was watching i was always happy that one would come out because that meant i got to go to the movies yeah so i vaguely remember seeing something with spock and whales in the theater but maybe maybe it wasn't the whale one it's hard to tell very long time ago yeah i would have been like a very small child i love that because my parents weren't into science fiction at all uh i got into star trek like because it was Something that there was a family that I stayed with one summer because both of my parents worked and they had like basically a an illegal daycare center that they ran out of their home. <laughs> was three homeschooled children, me and one other child. The family patriarch was the manager of the Lifeway Christian bookstore and the mother, the matriarch, worked from home basically as a homeschooler and running this illegal daycare. And they had Star Trek tapes, and I that was about it. That was like the introduction. They didn't really have much else. So wow. hence hence all this. <laughs> hence all this madness. Yeah. Thanks to Legal Daycare. Thanks like, to Legal Daycare. <laughs> My experiences with the show is like I remember conversations. And I think like Next Generation would have been on the TV at the time, but yeah. a lot of like philosophical discussions in boardrooms. When I think what I wanted out of <laughs> yeah. it was like more, you know, the the phaser battles and like the weird creatures, which is a very small portion of the yeah. show. Yeah. My grandpa was a huge Star Trek fan. And I just remember like 
thinking of it as being so tranquil when I watched it. Yeah. It's more of a fighting with your mind and your wit than like getting, you know, a laser beam to like cut someone in half or something. I mean, I like that this movie has those uh, mind controlling brain slugs because you get a little bit of like body horror. Let me tell you, I immediately took a Q-tip and put it (laughs) so far up my fucking ear after I saw that. Like I just started itching for some reason, like watching it happen on the screen. I don't know. You're not supposed to do that. Like nothing bigger than like. A knuckle smaller right? than your finger. I don't know. Yeah, but it went in. We all do it. Everybody <laughs> knows. Everybody knows you're not supposed to, and everybody does. Oh. It's fine. And I love how like I'm not a doctor. <laughs> that is like 80s splatter gore. Like the mm-hmm. close up is uh, of like a uh, plaster ear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's so cool. It looks great. Yeah, I did not expect that out of this movie because, like I said, I mostly remembered the talking from the show. It also has the moment where they discover all the bodies. Which is a lot creepier than what you would normally see in Star Trek. That you don't often see. I mean, not to talk about Red Letter Media again, but I guess <laughs> it is a, a weirdly meta thing considering Mike makes every conversation about Star Trek. There's a joke where they talk about uh, the episode "The Arena," which is the classic Kirk fights the ro- the reptile Gorn. I've seen that episode several times for yeah. some reason. That's the only one I can remember. Yeah. It's very well. It's it's famous. I mean yeah. it's it's it is the most uh, probably I would say the most famous like weird looking one-off alien of the original series. Mm-hmm. And they title it like it's an it's always sunny in Philadelphia episode. It's like <laughs> the the one where the gang goes to a federation planet and everyone's been murdered. <laughs> that happens a lot. Like the original series they're constantly going to colonies where there are like you know, parasites on everybody's back or like pollen that controls people's minds or everybody's been reduced to dust by extra universal dimensional beings. But you never actually see it on screen. Even like the famous red shirt deaths, at most you might see like like hickey marks on their faces from when the, the space vampire cloud takes away all of their salt that's two separate ones. Don't don't comment. Don't <laughs> at me. But them finding the bodies in this one is pretty creepy for a, a family movie, essentially. Yeah. Also, Khan gets burnt the fuck up at the end. He is in bad shape yeah. when he's giving his like that's more body from horror. Hell's Heart. Mm-hmm. I stab at the speech from Moby Dick. Is that like melt face? That eighties melt face? Yeah, that like the guy in RoboCop that gets slimed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yep. I mean, most of the violence is these two ships firing at each other. And this feels very true to the show where the camera shakes to show that the ship got hit. And then after the shake, everyone jumps in like a random choreographed direction um, and like sort of pulls himself back up to their station to like keep fighting. It actually kind of does exist in three dimensions, which is unusual for Star Trek as well, where everybody always meets themselves. Like every time you meet another ship, it's like, oh great, we're on the same like visible plane. Like you never meet with like everybody's 45 degrees at each other. For them to kind of exist in a 3D space is unusual for Star Trek and it, it works for it. And I guess we also miss the horror of like Scotty's nephew that he brings up to the bridge who is like completely destroyed by whatever, you know, blew up in the engine room. Um, yeah, there's, like, more focus on his dead body than there are on, like, dead bodies on the show, usually. Yeah. It's in a deleted scene that was generally included in the film when it aired on television is the explanation that he's Scotty's nephew. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it kind of that. makes it personal. Mm. Oh, uh, another interesting thing about the movie is everybody dies at the beginning. 
in the training simulation. Mm-hmm. And that was actually a really early instance of the studio fending off spoilers. Because it had come out uh, months before the movie came out that Spock was going to die in it. And what they did is put that scene at the beginning where it's the training scenario where the entire staff dies to throw people off. Like, oh, that they would never kill Spock. Of course, it was just this is what the the news was talking about. And then that makes his also kind of horrifying death at the end kind of ring a little stronger as well. Wow. Uh, I did get my biggest gasp out of the movie in that first scene where I was like, is that Kirstie Alley's voice? No way. Yeah. And then Kirstie Alley appears on the screen. I was like, no, wow. Is this pre or post her joining Scientology? Pre. This is like an early role for her in general, right? Yeah. yeah. She gets an end introducing credit in this film because this is pre-Cheers, I think, or like was filmed pre-Cheers and came out. She looks like a baby. She is so young. after North and South, I think. Possibly. Is she supposed to be Vulcan in this movie? Mm -hmm. Uh, Right? Again, don't, don't at me, anyone. Uh, yes, she is. Within the Apocrypha, she is half Romulan, half Vulcan. That's never confirmed by anything on screen. So are Romulans like Vulcans, but the bad ones, like the rebellious ones? Yeah. Okay. It's like they're... I remember this. <laughs> yeah, the, the Vulcans were like, you know, they had this philosopher, Serac, who introduced the concept of, like, logic and the Vulcans who were like, we're not going to play that game, founded Romulus. Gotcha. See, I think that explanation, like, off-screen makes sense because that is terrible casting. I love her in this yeah. movie. But she has this, like, Kathleen Turner kind of, like, sultry, like, soulfulness. Yeah. And, like, Vulcans mm-hmm. are supposed to be kind of, like, clinical and logical and stuff. And it just felt, like, really... Like, yeah. I didn't know if she was actually supposed to be Vulcan or if she just had, like, pointy ears. It is strange. I love her as Spock's protege. And she was supposed to come back for Star Trek VI as a betrayer, but Kirstie Alley refused to do it, and so they rewrote the role, and it was Kim Cattrall instead. Ooh, that sounds so, even better. Again, kind of weird. <laughs> also kind of breathy and like not quite, not yeah. quite right for, for Vulcans, but I think she actually did Vulcan a little bit better than Kirstie. To answer your question, I'm pretty sure she joined Scientology after working with Travolta on Look Who's Talking. Okay. That I think sense. I think that that was her introduction. Gotcha. More I was like, sci-fi. was she so yeah. like, I know that's like, was she so inspired by this role that she's like, I'm just going to put sci-fi in my face. <laughs> I don't know. Another thing I find interesting about her being on the show is that like, it's young blood being injected into this mm-hmm. like old crew. And like that early simulation feels like part of it where Kirk is like becoming this like instructor role. And he's like, I'm getting too old for this shit exploring the galaxy. Yeah. And this is, like, way after the show. It was, like, what, like, 15, 20 years after the show? Or? Yeah, it would have been about 13 years right. later. Oh. So yeah. it, it feels like maybe because they thought this would have been the last movie, this is about, like, the new guard coming in and, like, taking over. Yeah. She's, like, the first person you actually see when the movie starts. It's the first voice you hear. Yeah. 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 I had never actually considered that, you know, as being part of their, like, way of winding down. Because she has a very small role played by a different actress they recast in star trek 3 she has a she's in like a subplot and then at the beginning of star trek 4 they leave her ass behind on vulcan and she (laughs) does not show up again ever so yeah especially it is like a literal next generation as well with kirk's son who they also i mean spoiler alert kill off in the third one like real fast so you're right. It is kind of like as soon as they realized that they were going to get more, they were like, oh, we don't need these youngins. Let's right. get back to, to Kirk and company. The OGs. Yeah. And it's 
funny. Like this, the movie series. I can't think of any other show like this where like the movie series took on a life of its own after this was so popular, and then a next generation, literally, of the show yeah. was on TV concurrently. Yeah, and they were separate for a long time. That's uh, very odd. They didn't do their film crossover until the the next generation had ended, and also they didn't do it well ev- ever. I don't think Generations is that good. Uh, they do have Scotty show up on the Next Generation and Spock, and uh, Doctor McCoy shows up in the the pilot in the premiere at age like a hundred and eight. <laughs> but yeah, that once they actually brought like Kirk and Picard together, they made like I, I don't know like one of the worst Malcolm McDowell movies I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I I do want to talk about McCoy for a second. Sure. Uh, that is a character that has nothing to do in this movie. He reminds me a lot of we were talking about the Downton Abbey earlier. Yeah. That is his role in here. Like he's just there to deliver jokes and it is so funny every time. Like <laughs> Yeah. Kirk has this very like heated argument with Christy Alley in a elevator and then they take the hold off the elevator and go to the next floor and then McCoy's there waiting for the door to open and he goes, Who's holding the damn elevator up? Yeah. And then uh later he his big laugh line is like, Are you out of your Vulcan mind? Yeah. And, like, that's his job. He is, like, Maggie Smith in this movie. Like, he's just, like, a quip machine. Uh, and it's very funny. The power trio element of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy is less important in this one because it is about Kirk feeling like he's getting to... I mean, Shatner is, like, not the greatest dude lately. His Twitter is, like, uh, very problematic. Most I've old heard, people. like, um, he was, like, horrible to work with, too. Oh, yeah. I, Where he's just, like, a shitty person, maybe? Yeah, he and Nimoy were... <laughs> feuding for decades and then they they made up but like Takei did not invite him to his wedding (laughs) Um, I remember oh my god so in 1996 when I was nine years old my mother took me to a Star Trek convention at the Baton Rouge Hall Convention Center on Florida and the guest of honor was George Takei oh wow and he told this story about at one point, someone putting, like, you know, they have these, like, pop-up things that are like microscopes, but it's like, you know, they look in for information or whatever when they're doing their scientific doodattery. <laughs> and he told the story about, like, somebody taping, like, a, a naked woman's photo inside of his scanner. And, you know, of course, this is 1996. He intimates that it's Shatner. Everybody has a little laugh, which knowing that he was out to his castmates at the time makes Shatner seem like a real uh, dick. Like a bully, yeah. yeah. So I'm not shocked. Shatner's not really, doesn't seem like that great a dude. This is probably, I think, the best performance of his career. He's really killing the growing old and the feeling of obsolescence mm-hmm. and the the new guard coming in feeling like he has no place. And then, you know, the final line of the movie after he's done all of this is I feel young, you know, it's, it is his journey of feeling like he's old, feeling like he has no place losing the person that means the most to him in the world. And then realizing that life goes on. Yeah. Like that is a huge theme and like regeneration. And yeah life and death but like it was everywhere in this movie the genesis device um, which is both a device for life and for death because if you fire it at a place where there already is life it like wipes it out and like yeah. starts anew 
That was one of the first animations ever done by Pixar. Oh, was the oh, Genesis device uh, demonstration that You're they watched. That Land Before Time no, reveal. No. Yeah, with, I love uh, that thing. That's great. With the with the wave that cool. comes over the planet, I, I think it still looks good. Yeah, but one thing to note is the budget on this movie was like a shoestring. It was almost nothing. One of the special edition DVDs features like a textual like uh, trivia commentary like you see on AMC sometimes like you know where they'll show contact and they'll be like oh in this scene Matthew McConaughey is on a soapbox because Jodie Foster is taller you know whatever nonsense but I don't know that that's true I'm not a doctor (laughs) but uh, Mike and Denise Okuda who were like technical specialists uh, on a lot of the franchise there's a shot early on where Kirk and Spock are walking down a hallway at Starfleet Academy and they stop underneath like this arch with like plants and flowers on it. That's a miniature. That's an in-camera wow. four by four miniature. Like they didn't have the money to wow. build like a floral arch. Like wow. that's how cheaply this movie was made. And considering that and considering that it's also 37 years old, I think it looks great. Yeah, I never would have guessed that. Did not know that. I wonder if like that was a benefit in some ways, though, because when movie production companies invest a lot of money in something, they the producers want to control the content. Yeah. And I could see how that would make something like Star Trek, the motion picture, come across as like this sort of like bland slog. Yeah. Whereas this one is a very specific story that feels like it's for fans only. Like, who the fuck would remember one episode from that long ago when... There was no, there might have been reruns, but there was no like VHS for you to no, like watch yeah. obsessively at home at the time or anything like that. So, yeah, it feels like people who actually care about it were making it. And, like, yeah. I, I know you mm-hmm. said the guy had not seen that much of the show when he wrote it. So, maybe I'm talking about an ass. No, they, they they gave him the whole show. Well, and he, watched he watched the whole, the whole series. Show, so. right. And then, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I I completely agree. And I think to, to the question about Kath and Kim as to whether or not it makes sense if you had not seen the show, I think Wrath of Khan does. You, you get everything you need to know about Kirk and Khan's relationship from, like, Khan's speech. And if you know the, like, for be- lack of a better term, mythology, it is deeper. But I think that other than Voyage Home, it was probably the first one I had ever seen. Like, when I was a kid, there was no way to see the classic Star Trek. They, were the, the, they had the VHS tapes of the episodes for rent like at the video store but i mean that's a hard sell and it was like for what, your two parents. episodes a tape yeah it was like two yeah. episodes a tape mm-hmm. that's a hard sell at one point sci-fi channel did like a an expanded edition of the original series when i was like in sixth grade so like years after i had seen this for the first time did i see space seed i gotta tell you the original series it was not as good <laughs> as it was in my mind like just reading about it and like imagining it uh, it was a lot cheaper looking and it had a lot more plasticky sets, <laughs> but I, I, I still think it, you know, it has value, but yeah. Well, also you have that introduction when Khan like tells the entire plot of the episode to yes. Chekhov when he first meets them. Yep. So it's kind of like a previously on like speech and it's very concise. Like you get a few sentences like, oh, I've been abandoned on this planet by Kirk and my wife died because of it. Like, oh, that's, that's why I'm pissed. mad. Yeah. And that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like when I think of Star Trek, this is like the first thing I think of. This movie? Yeah. Is the Wrath of Khan just because hmm. it was so like, I don't know, because I'm more familiar with like the movie side of Star Trek, I think, yeah. than the television side. And I used to get the movie cover confused with Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> They're very similar. <laughs> but they, they have, they have like, that Khan like dusky. And Tina Turner's character have like that same kind of look. <laughs> they have like that, right? They have the same haircut. The hair. 
I couldn't tell if it was Mad Max or if it was um, Ice Pirates. Like it was somewhere oh. between that. Like that. Yeah. That. <laughs> yes. So I remember, like, um, that was like my first encounter with Wrath of Khan. Was at like the video store where I was like, "Whoa, <laughs> that's like a weird cover for Beyond Thunderdome." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, okay." And yeah, I, I just one of my vivid memories of Deborah's Movie World. Rest in peace. So you'd seen this before or no? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I've seen it like a couple of times, like just throughout, like you know, my grandpa was a Trekkie and or is it he's not dead um (laughs) and you know he would have it playing when they had like those um illegal boxes that would take like all the fun channels for free from your neighbor or something they had one of those i remember like walking in a few times for visits and he would watch it and then i rented it when i was like a teen did you think you were renting beyond thunderdome at that (laughs) point probably okay just curious (laughs) and um then I had like this weird like Star Wars that Star Wars shit fuck. I do that all the time. All the damn time. It makes my stepmad like, go this, crazy. Yeah, <laughs> he hates it. <laughs> this like interest in Star Trek in college a little bit and then I watched it again. So but yeah, like you know, every time like I remember like watching it like oh, it's like a little different. There are things I forgot and yeah, there's like more things I focused on like fucking Spock's eyebrows look like divine a little bit. Oh yeah, they're very draggy. I think just from like <laughs> right. Like, because when we do like crew divine, I'm like, I need to draw them like this. That exact like <laughs> arch. It's the perfect yeah. straight arch. And you know, these little like these tiny little things where I'm like, oh wow, I never realized that. Um so it was cool like watching it again. There's so many intricate little details where I'm like, I forgot about that. Like it, it wasn't like rewatching something. It felt fresh. It's a very rewarding film to rewatch, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you don't really do Star Trek at all. So this was like a fresh watch for you. See, I watched so much Star Trek as a kid just because it was uh-huh. always on at my house. It's, but it's like a time warp show to me where like it feels like when it's on, it's on for hours. Like an episode <laughs> of that show is like a whole night to me. But I, I did see the show from Next Generation through, I want to say Deep Space Nine, which is a lot. Yeah. But I don't remember details of it because it just, it just seemed like endless conversations and like flashes of things that I would care about. Yeah. Uh, the movie, especially this movie, honestly, I can't remember that many details from the other ones I've seen, is exciting to me because it feels like more of the stuff I wanted from the show. Yeah. Uh, that big battle towards the end where they have to like mm-hmm. turn off their sensors and like strategically battle yeah. through the window of the... Uh, that's very exciting like action yeah. stuff. And I don't feel like you get that from the show very often. So, I don't know. There's like more payoffs here than like an episode of the show for me. Yeah. Typically. You certainly don't get that from the original series. It's just like, oh, the godlike being is actually a child, or the child is a godlike being, you know, whether it's Trelane or Charlie X. Uh, and then. What color from the rainbow is uh, Kirk gonna fuck this week? Yeah. It's yeah. Like, like purple women or pink women or. Yeah. <laughs> green yeah. ladies. Yeah, exactly. It's the, the Orion green ladies. Oh. And yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of fan division about how. At least, I don't know, in the terrible shit posting groups that I have been a part of, <laughs> and also like the message boards that were I, I had access to too early in my life, uh, and which no one should ever access ever again, that Deep Space Nine isn't quote unquote true Star Trek because it has a different plot. It's stationary. There's a war plot. I, I mean, it is. It is very good. It's great television. I'm now remembering that there was a show after that called Voyager that I also watched. Completely forgot that existed until just now. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I thought 
thought that was a movie. No, that's another show. Shit. They just kept making them. I just, the last one I remember was like The Next Generation. Yeah. That's it. Voyager was cool because it had a Voyager. female captain. Oh. Yeah. Um, Holla. Don't Voy- remember much else. Voyager gave us the Obama presidency. Oh. You want to go into that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, Jerry Ryan, who portrayed Seven of Nine on Voyager, uh, introduced kind of in around the, uh, the third or fourth season. Uh, she was a Borg that had been assimilated as a child, and they had rescued her from the collective. Back in the time period that the show was on, her husband, who was an Illinois state senator, uh, got embroiled in a pretty big sex scandal that involved him sexually abusing her Fuck. in front of... Uh, I'm sorry, I guess we should trigger warning this, but basically forcing her to perform oral sex in front of his colleagues oh at God. like strip clubs and shit. Jesus. And it probably would have been brushed under the rug as just another like minor political scandal. I mean, like look how many chances Anthony Weiner got, but the fact that she was on a premiere, uh, you know, Voyager was the like, um, like the, the keystone show of UPN. UPN. And she was the breakout character in that show. She was the it? breakout character on yeah. the show. It got a lot of traction and uh, he lost his next election and allowed a young upstart named Barack Obama to take his Senate seat. Oh hence, my God. Hence, here we are. That's a very Chicago story in general though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yikes. Whoa. Get that from your Waukegan right. affiliate. <laughs> okay. Maybe to lighten it up a little bit. Um, okay, sorry, sorry, everybody. <laughs> I did, I did like the movie. It did feel a lot longer than it actually was. Yeah, and like it felt like a whole afternoon, even though it was a couple hours. It's, um, it is two and a half hours. Oh, it's it is? not okay, a it short is movie. Okay, it, yeah. Compared to like Catherine Kim, which was like eating a cupcake, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, there were like a few times where I was like, "All right, it looks like um, everyone's dead. I think it's over." And then it has like that restart where, yeah, I like that though. Yeah. Like when you kind of think it's over, like it feels early. Another thing I think is interesting, just based on the two picks y'all picked, like, yes. this is not Star Trek the motion picture. This right. is not Star Trek the movie. It's like a sequel to a episode arc and it's like further along and it's kind of involving things you had to already know. Mm-hmm. Um, Kath and Kim has a, like, Kath and Kim the movie type thing called Kath and Kim Dorella, which is a hard title to yeah. remember, where they, like, go to Italy, and, like, it's a bigger production than the mockumentary-style show. Yeah. But that's not the one you liked. You liked the one that was, like, a, basically a longer episode. It's like, a 90-minute uh-huh. episode of the show. Like it even season. starts with the same intro and ends with the same ending. Yeah. <laughs> which I thought was special for the movie. I thought the intro was like a James Bond spoof. So when I went back and watched the show, I had no idea that was going to be the... like, oh, there it is again. Yeah. <laughs> I love that song. That is one of the greatest theme songs And of Kim all time. sings it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What? <laughs> Kim. Also, I like how um, the show always ends with them reading gossip magazines and like making fun of celebrities. And like hanging out on the patio. <laughs> um, this ups the ante a little bit by introducing a crane shot that pulls out of the yard. It's like barely an improvement. I, f- I found that really funny. <laughs> it's like, ooh, high tech. Yeah. But that's kind of how the movie is. It's like yeah. a barely elevated version of the show. <laughs> I, I just thought that was interesting that that's what y'all liked more, but I guess that's kind of natural if you are hooked into the show. You would like a continuation of what you already are watching. Yeah. If I had not chosen Wrath of Khan, I would have for sure chosen Charlie's Angels Full Throttle <laughs> and not just Charlie's Angels, Charlie's Angels. So... <laughs> I, I don't know what that means. And that's a little different because that's like a reboot of a TV series and not like a sequel. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But 
Jacqueline Smith shows up in full throttle. Oh, okay. And she is for sure playing Kelly, even though they... Oh, God, I'm such a nerd. <laughs> She's for sure playing Kelly, even though they never actually say her name. So you think it's a reboot, and then the sequel comes out, and no, it turns out it's been in continuity all the time. <laughs> Which they tried to do with uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. Uh, they tried to like combine storylines with the reboot and with, oh. like this alternate dimension theory where there's like multiple Spocks and yeah, uh, it gets very convoluted. They were like, "All right, nerds! All right, <laughs> boomers of the world! <laughs> Your Star Trek's still out there. It's that's the prime continuity, and now we have the Calvin timeline, and it can do whatever it wants." While we were while we were off mic for a second. Brittany asked me what I thought of those, and I was I was like, I don't know if we should talk about that off We're like, mic, we'll but, save it for later. <laughs> but I don't care for them. I thought the first yeah. one was fine. Into Darkness is for sure a remake of Wrath of Khan. Very poorly done. <laughs> it's a movie that takes every idea from Wrath of Khan and does it worse. But I actually did like a Star Trek Beyond. A lot of people say that. I didn't see that one. I haven't seen that one either. I, it touched me. Oh. It was the only one that I really felt like kind of actually understood what Star Trek is. I mean, it was still like a big, dumb action movie. There's like a, you know, they use the Beastie Boys to defeat the aliens of the film in a way that like you wouldn't. That's not Star Trek at all. But it at least understood like the philosophy of the importance of tolerance and coming Mm -hmm. together and not allowing ourselves to be drawn backward into regressive policies and ideas just because the heroes of a different era had those ideas, mm-hmm. which I was like, that's, that's a fucking Star Trek moral. You know, at least it had that. But yeah, that's my answer to your question. Okay. I thought I the curious. first one was fine as far as like getting people back on board for Star Trek. I remember like when that movie came out, like going just like to Target, they had like action figures, but like, OG Star Trek action figures. Yeah. Like it wasn't like Zachary Quinto or something, which yeah. I probably would have bought. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I thought it was just this huge like resurgence of it. And I remember like every grocery store had like the Pez candy set. Yes. <laughs> it was like when it the Simpsons everywhere. movie came out a couple years before yeah. it. It was like the Simpsons ruled the world again for That's a second. That's another good TV sequel. Yeah. Oh my oh, God. Such a good I like movie. that one. We didn't even consider it. I wanted to do Beavis and Butthead on this episode. Uh, Beavis and Butthead do America. Boomer vetoed that. I would have watched it, but <laughs> not gladly. I did not want to. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, it's fine. I have no fondness for that franchise, other oh, okay. than like you know, I, I, obviously I love Daria. Uh, you oh, Daria is great. But I had a roommate who had grown up with Beavis and Butthead and was like, "No, you have to watch this." Like right around the time when we first started getting like Netflix DVDs. And so we would get like the series DVDs in the mail and I would just be like, I'm not enjoying this at all. The home video issues of that show are weird in the same way that Daria Uh was where there's a music licensing problem where like the funniest bits of the show can't be on physical media because they cost too much money. Okay. Um, Actually the reboot of the show from like 2014 is exceptionally funny Okay. uh, because they're riffing on how MTV doesn't play music videos now. They only play reality shows. So they're watching like Jersey Shore and like Teen Mom and stuff like that. Beavis and Butthead would watch music videos and comment on them. Yeah. That didn't make it to physical media. Okay. I remember um, Annie Lennox's No More I Love You's and they were commenting on it and there's a part where she like turns and she starts singing and they scream. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
That that is the gold of the show. I remember it. Yes. Uh, the um, <laughs> what they could release on DVD were like these like interstitial bits that were like kind of go nowhere comedy scenes, and they were kind of huh. like an early King of the Hill. Mm-hmm. riff but it wasn't quite there yet now i'm sold i'm sorry it's too late <laughs> oh, it's okay yeah. and the movie to be honest is a bigger version of the interstitials that you didn't like mm. uh but i think it's a, it's been a very long time since i've seen it but i i thought i thought it was like a more clear-cut like better honed version of the bit okay i like that movie it's been a very long time so i don't even know if it holds up um, are there any other like t- like movie sequels to tv shows veronica mars was that good? I didn't yes. love that. Come yes, on. It was, it was good. okay. Uh, I didn't... Okay. My least favorite thing about Veronica Mars was always her, like, man drama. Mm-hmm. Like, I was always much more interested in her relationship with her dad and with her friends. And I could not have given less of a fuck about Logan. Oh, so I hated how much of the film was about, Logan like... Logan Eccles' life. Logan, coming back to Logan. And now he's like a hot Navy man. So yeah. I know I'm always trying to like pull in like the real housewives into every episode. of the movie. <laughs> so in Veronica Mars, um, Logan Eccles' parents are oh, Lisa yeah. Renna and Harry Hamlin. Harry Hamlin, who yeah. Are, she's like the hottest, like as in like ratings and she's gorgeous. Real Housewife of Beverly Hills and Harry Hamlin is on the show a lot. So yeah. Throw that in there. <laughs> I liked the new season of Veronica Mars way more than I liked the movie. I thought that was like... I haven't focused. seen it. It's fun. I haven't watched it either. Oh, what? I'm That's so, crazy. I'm so excited for it. I liked the and movie, then... though. I thought it was, like, for... I don't know. It was sweet. It was, like, crowdfunded, and it was kind of, like, it gave everybody what they wanted, I think. I liked it. And that was, that is a film that almost does not make sense unless you know the show. Right. Yep. Initially, my friend Kat and I were going to go see it in theaters, and then we didn't because she didn't have a sweater, and she always gets cold at the theater, and it's a whole big rigmarole. <laughs> so we just went back to my house, and because it was released on on demand at the same time uh-huh. it was like I actually for the first time I had to figure out how to hook up my Xbox to the internet and rent <laughs> this thing and there was the moment where um, Lily's mom is like shot and I had to like pause it and explain to her like the whole deal about who Lily Jesus. was and then I was like she was like aren't you glad we didn't see this at the theater <laughs> so you could do this I was like yeah I guess you're right with all those marshmallows yeah there's Mask of the Phantasm oh yeah it's a great film uh, which got a theatrical release, as did, I think, Return of the Joker, which was a sequel to the Batman Beyond series. That Mask of the Phantasm fight that's like on a miniature version of Gotham is one of my favorite yes. like Batman fights ever. It's got this like kaiju level like scale to it that's really fun to watch. Yes. Cool. Um, and I feel like a lot of my favorites, like live action wise, are like the movie versions of stuff. Like I really like the strangers with candy movie. I think it's really funny. Oh yeah. That's so good. But they feel the need to like dial the clock back to the beginning and like redo the whole scenario. And it's a lot of work for like a little payoff. They could have just made it another episode. A continuation. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, we get who Jerry is. Right. Like it's basically on the same level of Captain Kim where it's all eccentricities and not really much else story wise. So I don't know. There's unnecessary work there. I think that's enough. <laughs> this, this is already going to be a longer episode We're than TV usual. We're movie experts. But I mean, this is the kind of like stuff that you fall in love with the show and you want more and more of it. And it's a good way yeah. to continue like, it. And I like, especially now with all these different platforms, like they're bringing like stuff that we thought was over with forever back. I like the idea of TV movies because like it might not be the end of something you really loved and it could like re-trigger something great. I I'm of two minds about it. Like, like Do we need hope. a third season like of Fleabag? I like that it's like two like short, perfect objects. I wonder what happens with the priest. Uh, but 
it's so like much I better. want them to get it on again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I want more, but I'm also like cautious to like <laughs> more priests. It's good when things end sometimes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, as much as I would love to see Community fulfill its like six seasons and a movie like promise, at this point I'm not sure that I want that. It, like <laughs> right. I think that mm-hmm. maybe the time has come and gone. Not every series that yeah. would work for, yeah. No, totally. Well, thank you, Boomer, for coming on. It's been a long time coming. Well, even though I was only here for this one, I would love to do it again. Yes. Um, I, I always have been and forever shall be willing to be your guest. Yes. Do you do you have like Skype capabilities? Every every now and then we do a Skype episode. Sure. I could <gasps> I guess I could figure that out. Yes. Yeah. I'm I'm very computer inept. Me too. But, That's why we record this in person. Because <laughs> it's more fun for me because the computers make me mad. Well, we'll do it. We'll figure, <laughs> figure it out. out. Yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. And next two episodes should be Halloween themed. Uh, I think the next one's me and James talking about Neil Breen movies, which I've never seen before. Ooh, Wonderful. I guess they have that like, kind of Tommy Wiseau energy, but they're like supernatural. Uh, <laughs> so that'll be interesting. Uh, and then you and I are going to do new metal vampires after that to wrap and, up the Halloween season. Uh, uh, I'm probably going to wear black lipstick the whole like month. Of, <laughs> yeah. Done. Will Dracula 2000 be involved? Yes. yes! Is, it, is it the centerpiece? <laughs> the centerpiece is Jonathan Davis singing in um, Queen, of the Queen of the Damned. Okay. Yeah. I, I, Whenever I was laid up last Halloween, because I was laid up for all of Halloween, we were plumbing the depths, and my roommate came across Dracula 2000, and he was like, is this any good? I was like, no, but it has vitamin C, and we're going to watch it right now. (laughs) (laughs) She works at the, she and the, like, the, the lady, the main lady, work at the Virgin record store on, uh, South Peter's. It might actually even be what became the urban that I worked at Wait, whenever so you're I lived saying here. Oh, that urban outfitter. Yes. You're saying that Dracula 2000 is set in New Orleans. I mean, not entirely, but I'm mostly. I'm just learning this. Yes. Exciting. Exciting. Yes. <laughs> well, look forward to more Dracula 2000 thoughts uh, and other Halloween goodies uh, coming your way next month. Um, yes. Now that we've gotten our Downton Abbey-ness out of our system. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I'll see you all in a couple Spooky weeks. Spooky only. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>